Hello, and welcome to Inside the Sound of Fear. Technoir is a slipstream genre existing somewhere between crime or detective fiction, speculative near-future science fiction, and cynical dystopian satire. Sometimes, the spark of a story can be a simple image in the writer's mind. In this case, a man locked in the trunk of a moving car using his sense of hearing to decipher his destination and the possible motives behind his own kidnapping. And now, please enjoy Love's Hard Edge. The night air was warm and dry and carried with it the scent of sweet desert flowers. Enfolding the palm tree dotted courtyard in its curved concrete and glass arms was the Ureshi Corporate Office Complex, a distinctive semicircular presence on the ever-expanding Culver City skyline. The red carpet looked like a giant tongue extending from the oversized double glass doors at the entrance. The strip of fabric cut across the open space, down wide marble steps, all the way to the circular driveway. I stood alone amongst the cliques of noisy people, growing uncomfortable with their proximity. I'd made a great paying career out of composing music for Ureshi's billion-dollar video games, though holding on to my position had been anything but easy. I took another sip of bourbon. The crushed ice against my upper lip was refreshing. The booze was taking the edge off, and I needed to be relaxed when I talked with Mr. Sato, the only man at the company with the power to give my department the headcount increase I needed. There were two groups concentrated on either side of the carpet. One bunch, done up in black ties and evening dresses, looked ready to take their seats at an opera. The other had a more rebellious demeanor, tattoos tight jeans, and uh, studiously worn leather jackets. Corporate VPs and uh, one of the creative production teams, respectively. Sato glanced in my direction. I saluted him with my glass. He broke away from the black tie group and walked over, glancing disapprovingly at some guests leaving the party early to embrace a night of temporary freedom. They climbed into rideshares, blue and white GPS cars, or shiny private pickup service vehicles. I envied them. It looked like I was going to be sticking around for a while. My moment approached, and I focused on the best way to ask Sato for two additional people. I didn't think I'd be able to talk with him tonight. I wasn't prepared. His tie was askew cheeks reddish in the light of the courtyard. He had a drained champagne flute in one hand, and his black coat hung a bit loose over his round body. Looking good, Carlos, he said. Nice suit. Thanks, Mr. Sato. I visited a good tailor after you took me on full time. Good, Carlos, good. Sato swirled his empty goblet. Corporate is... Pleased with the music in the latest game. Thanks, I said. I couldn't have done it without my team, or Eli's approval. Ah, Eli. Do you like working with him? Sure I do. Good, Sato chuckled. The next game is going to be different. We finally have the technology to implement a variable protagonist theme. Variable? Each player will have a different gaming experience based on his or her social profile. You'll write five themes, all in the key of A, each one supporting one of the five Sopro personality types. That'll be a challenge, I said. Themes are the hardest parts of the score to nail. It would help if I could bring in a pair of assistants, though... Sato put his goblet to his lips and furrowed his brow, tasting only air. He drew back his head and lowered his voice. I'll, uh, have a talk with Eli. We'll see what we can do at the budget meeting. Thanks. 
What else could I say? My meeting-before-the-meeting strategy worked. The company was demanding, though when the chips were down, they'd always been in my corner. I glanced up at the complex. Half the lights were still on at ten o'clock on a weeknight. Ureshi employees weren't afraid of working late or hard, and I was glad to be part of that dedicated group. I appreciate your confidence, I said. Sato grinned, extended his hand. I took a half step back like he had offered me a tarantula. Damn, that was rude of me. When the adrenaline flows, I can't help myself. Uh, Sorry, sorry, he said. I forgot. It's my problem, not yours, Mr. Sato. He leaned in. These parties must be difficult for you. Do you shun being touched at all? It's only a problem when I'm taken by surprise. I can prepare myself for it and be okay. Sato chuckled. Ah, I understand. You're more comfortable behind the scenes. You have no issue with machines or musical instruments because they perform in a predictable fashion. People, on the other hand, can be unreliable. Sato excused himself. Good evening, Carlos. I'm due for a refill. He walked the length of the carpet toward the lobby's festive glow. The doors glided open. Music and a cacophony of voices spilled out. Sato's bald spot disappeared into the crowd of revelers. Business done, I had my excuse to leave. I punched up my ride and leaned up against the wall near the driveway. Five themes. I needed to get started ASAP. If I could get those assistance, maybe this dream project wouldn't turn out to be a nightmare. I spotted my Lincoln pulling up behind the others. Surprisingly good service. They must have been waiting nearby. The powerfully built driver got out. He had a goatee, and I spotted the tip of a neck tattoo peeking out from his buttoned-up white collar. He opened the rear passenger door, arms straining the fabric of his black suit. I unbuttoned my coat, and that was when someone cracked me from behind. It was a solid blow, not particularly painful. I guess I have a hard head. Yet it disoriented me for a moment. I reached my right hand up to the back of my skull. It was warm and wet. I spun around to get a look at whoever the hell had hit me. It was another black-suited guy. This one had a pockmarked face, like he'd had bad acne when he was a teenager. The driver was backing him up. Acne scars produced a burlap bag. This was a kidnapping. I had to get the fuck out of here. I doubted I could get past the guys, so I dove into the car, scrambling over the rear seats and stretched for the handle on the opposite door. My fingers never reached it. They yanked me back out. My ass hit the curb, hard. They shoved the bag over my head. One of the bruisers picked me up under my arms and carried me behind the car. I thought of yelling. I know that's what you're supposed to do. My phobia took over, though, and I couldn't even draw breath. My muscles locked up, and my throat was so dry I could barely swallow. The longer you wait to break free, statistically speaking, the shorter your odds are of surviving a kidnapping. I was panicking, and if I was going to escape, I had to force myself to think. Either of these guys could overpower me easily. I couldn't see out of the bag. The party crowd wasn't that far away. Couldn't they see what was happening? Why didn't I hear shouts of protest? The bruisers wrenched my hands behind my back, zip-tied my wrists, and dropped me into the trunk. They slammed it shut, and everything went darker. The trunk smelled of new carpet with a hint of engine oil. I was winded from being dropped on my side. I started slow turned onto my other side, so I was facing the trunk latch. My neck cramped when I rubbed my head against the carpet in a weird way, trying to free my head from the bag, though I finally got the bag off. My vision went from brown-black to black-black. I filled my lungs with stale, hot air, looking around for the -the glow-in-the-dark handle that was supposed to prevent kidnappers from putting people in trunks of modern cars. Nothing. My mind raced. 
I stopped squirming, like that would somehow help me think. They'd dropped me on my bad shoulder, the one I had wounded in a motorcycle accident nine years ago. Every time I twisted against the zip tie, that shoulder sent pain lightning to my brain and brought back bad memories of the long road to recovery. I drew my knees up, rolled on my back, and kicked against the trunk lid. It didn't budge. I strained against the zip tie until the plastic bit into the flesh of my wrists. I yelled loud. I couldn't believe nobody noticed them grab me. The party guests probably didn't want to get involved. I'd like to think if it had been me out there, I would have done something. Maybe one of them called 911. Maybe. I rolled to the back of the trunk when the car peeled out. We were in Culver City traffic after dark, so they couldn't be going too fast. The driver wove his way through the other cars and I slid around. Crazy how much more you're affected by a car's acceleration when you're not buckled into one of the seats. The driver kept executing short drifts, accelerating with confidence. At least I could breathe. Where the hell were they taking me? When we came to the next stop, I tried yelling again at the top of my lungs. We surged forward. My face got mashed into the trunk latch. I couldn't hear a police siren or anything that led me to believe anyone was coming. Tire noise from the wheels grew. We drove on for an interminable length of time. I figured we'd merged onto the freeway. I was overheating. My suit clung to my flesh like a smothering blanket, and I was sweating like crazy, dwelling on what the bruisers might do to me. I noticed a lack of weight from my inside coat pocket. They must have grabbed my phone. We drove on, and I tried to pay attention to the time between the turns we made, or figure the distance to calculate where we were. If we went south, we could be in Carson by now. If we went north, we'd be way past the Getty Center. Burbank, Tarzana, maybe further. Were they driving me out to the desert to murder me? There was an awful fist of ice in my stomach at the thought of me ending up as a warning to Sato, Eli, or some other executive I didn't even know because my company got in the way of some rival company's profits. If this was a kidnapping, would Ureshi pay the ransom? With the music already delivered on the latest project, I doubted it. We slowed down and street traffic crept up around us again. I drew back and gave another bone-jarring kick to where I thought the trunk latch was. It didn't budge. We made a hard left, slowed, then angled down. It grew colder, like we were going underground. When we came to a stop, the city sounds were gone. The car lifted from the weight of the two bruisers stepping out. Their footsteps came around either side and met at the trunk. Here we go. I got ready to kick away the gun they were going to shove between my eyes and dash to safety if I could somehow get myself up and out. My palms were damp with sweat. My head throbbed with an early hangover. I held my breath. The trunk squeaked open and bright light dazzled me. The bruisers were lit from behind like two faceless angels. One reached in and I jerked away. He insisted by grabbing me by the fabric of my coat and pulling me out of the trunk in one motion. I tried to cry out, couldn't, the scream frozen in my throat. It was hard to believe my fear of being touched was stronger than my will to survive. Cool air met my face, making it easier to think. I figured even if I could break away, these guys would have no problem chasing me down. They stood me up and escorted me toward some glass doors that read P2 Elevators. I was right about the parking area, though I didn't see any other cars. The white painted spaces and gray pillars reminded me of bleached bones. I filled my lungs with air. The sweat on my face was already drying. It was unusually cold. My guess was that we had driven out to the coast. The driver pushed the button to open the metal elevator doors, and we stepped in. My hands were still zip-tied. I looked at the buttons inside the elevator car. 
45-story building. It could be Aztec Industries in El Segundo, one of the up-and-comer game publishers, and a rival to mine. Come on, guys. I'm only a composer. Give me back my phone and let me go. You can tell your boss I escaped. They stared back at me with grave faces. We reached the top floor, and the elevator dinged. They shoved me out into the hall. There was blue carpet, and the artwork on the walls was mostly dark green, the Aztec corporate colors. The place smelled uncomfortably new, like plastic and glue. There were still unassembled desks, stacks of telephones and monitors lining the corridors like debris. This was a hive of offices and alcoves without a single worker to be seen. The unnatural lack of humanity gave the place a noiseless gloom. They walked me by a glass-paneled conference room with a flat-screen TV still in its box leaning against one wall, connector cables hanging like strands of spaghetti from the wall. We passed another that didn't even have a table and chairs yet, only a bare floor and some brown moving boxes. They opened the door and shoved me in. When they walked off, I tried my zip-tied hands on the door handle, locked from the outside. I should have known getting out of this wouldn't be that easy. I had to get them to talk to me. How would that conversation go? What would I say exactly? Is this your first kidnapping? Have you ever killed anyone in an empty office building? I'm thinking they'd answer, no, then yes. They wouldn't kill a man at Aztec Corporate Plaza, would they? Good news for me, if I was patient, I hoped. One wall of the conference room was windows that looked out into the city. I was on the 45th floor, so crashing through wasn't a great option. The side of the room that faced the hallway was plate glass, with an opaque strip down the middle, so people couldn't look in and see who their bosses were meeting. I listened at the door. No one was coming yet. I took stock of the situation, and my mind went into overdrive again, heart thudding in my chest. If I'd stayed at the party 20 minutes longer, would I have been okay? Would they have nabbed someone else? Why had I been in such a hurry to get out of there? Maybe they would have waited for me. Then again, maybe I would have read about another corporate kidnapping in the news tomorrow morning and said, By the gods, I was there that night. Called my best friend Neville in a panic, telling him how much I valued his friendship and admired his artistic talent, like I was moving out of town and would never see him again. Neville and I lived on the same street and had similar professions. I had plans to walk over to his place tonight for a drink. It had been at least an hour since I was at the party. I wondered what he was doing. Playing his grand piano, maybe? Figuring out how he's going to make the most of his next film budget? On the phone with his music supervisor? Or one of his other friends? He'll probably think I flaked, a typical L.A. move. He'll slowly realize I vanished, though. Was this the end of me? My mom passed away years ago. What was it she used to say? If something isn't finished, it's not worth anything. My life can't be finished. I never got a chance to find my dad. Footsteps approached. Three pairs. I stood up, straight. They unlocked the door. I recognized the first person, Karen Martinez, an independent music supervisor. She and I had done a project together about three years ago. We'd meshed so well at work that we'd gone out on a date. It was around when I had become full-time at Ureshi. She was prettier than I remembered, dressed in a killer dark gray business suit, enough makeup to accentuate her lips and eyes without looking too made up. The goons appeared on either side of her, hands in coat pockets like she was a celebrity meeting her number one fan. Hi, Carlos, she said. How's life at Ureshi? 
Um, fine, Karen, I said stupidly. Do you work for Aztec now? For now. Why are you... Why did you kidnap me? You're a hard man to get a hold of, Carlos. Her lips curved into a half-smile. Break any hearts lately? Break... Three years ago, you disappeared off the face of the earth. That was, uh, that was when I signed my contract. Exactly. You never returned my calls. Heat came to my cheeks. All this couldn't be because I hurt her feelings three years ago, could it? I thought back to our date. The details were buried by the raging political drama that had been going on in my career at the time. She and I had had a light dinner at Shia, shared a great bottle of Chardonnay, then had gone back to my place for some pretty decent sex. The summer sky had been a deep violet. Santa Ana conditions, kind of like tonight. The lights of the Hollywood Hills had been twinkling below. We took in the sights from my bay window. We'd started making out to Ravel's Daphne's and Chloe, and Debussy's The Sunken Cathedral. She'd been hesitant to do anything more than kiss at first. I thought that was a bit old-fashioned for someone who'd worked in entertainment. Then... Something had changed. She got undressed, took me by the hand, asked me where the bedroom was. Okay, wait a minute. Why should I feel guilty? She was the one who had me kidnapped, zip-tied, and brought here against my will. She'd be lucky if I didn't press charges. Still, spending time in the enemy camp wouldn't look great to my bosses, even if it had been against my will. I thought I'd play it cool for now. She said, Why didn't you call me? Didn't you have a good time that night? Most definitely. Why hadn't I called? Had I been scared of getting into a relationship? I hadn't been ready for a girlfriend then. I haven't given it much thought lately, though I probably wasn't ready for one now. I was only 36. 19 in Hollywood years. Oh, I said, I thought... You were calling me for a gig. Figured you eventually found out I was full-time and gave up. Is that what this is about? No, and yes, she said. These guys don't work for Aztec. They're my cousins. The guy with the goatee grinned. Hey, Holmes. Hey. She said, here's the thing. I'm looking to get out of the business, and I want to take you with me. Me? Really? Right. Get out? You mean retire? Aren't you a little young for that? I mean, you're valuable to them. They're not going to like you picking up stakes and riding off into the sunset in the middle of this software war. Exactly why I'm going to get myself a new identity Go somewhere where games aren't big business. I was thinking, Teruel. Northern Spain. My hometown. Where the weather changes with the seasons. Gourmands argue about the complexities of Jamón Serrano. And square medieval towers with Moorish arches dot the skyline. She said, didn't you always say you wanted to retire from composing and play local Spanish clubs? You remembered that? Let's do that, Carlos. She was out of her mind. Karen, I signed an agreement. I'm in the prime of my career. I can't simply disappear. She cocked her head to one side, said, Cut him loose. Acne scars pulled out a huge folding knife. For a moment, I thought he was going to kill me. He did like she said, and snicked off the zip tie. Why? You working on your next magnum opus? I was about to tell her about the new game's variable theme. Then I thought better. I'm uh, between projects right now. I have some great ideas, though. Lots of people are depending on me, Karen. For their jobs. 
If I run away, what will they fend for themselves? What else? I have listened to your two latest scores, Carlos. You're treading water. Not to put too fine a point on it, you could use a change. I have never been close to your level, though. It wasn't from lack of trying. That's why I gave up playing to become a music supervisor. I've made a good business out of protecting musicians, shielding them from corporate bullshit, and cutting them loose when they weren't the right fit. I know some people think I'm too tough, hate me, or whatever. It was all worth it to be close to people with real talent. Like you. Say what you want about me. I never took anyone for a ride. And you know I had plenty of opportunities. I know. I rubbed my wrist where the zip tie had broken the skin. We never even had a chance to date, though. I mean, beyond that first time. How do you know we're compatible? You might not even like me. She gave me another half-smile. I can tell. If anything, dating the other losers out there for the last three years has only made you a stronger choice. I'm the guitar case, and you're the guitar, Carlos. We fit. She was right, goddamn her, about my last couple of scores. Uninspired. Maybe I did need a change to get back in touch with my muse. I still had a couple of years on my contract, though. If something isn't finished, it's nothing. I've done a few questionable things in my time. I was always loyal to whomever was paying me, though. I couldn't skip town with Karen. Could I? She looked damn fine, though. And she was a lioness. I always wanted to end up with a woman like her. I regretted never having asked her out on a second date. I said, What if I say no? Will you and your cousins let me go? She stared at me with those beautiful hazel brown eyes. Yes. I hope you'll consider what's on the table, though. She handed me my cell phone. I glanced at it. Text from Neville. Where are you? I know you're loyal, Carlos. I also know you're smart. So, you must be thinking about being with me. Think of me like you're Princess Charming, and consider this your wake-up call. I think you'd make a pretty good husband. If we were together in Spain, far from this crappy city, we'd be free. And don't give me that artist needs to keep his life predictable crap either. Artists need travel and new experiences to grow. Your loyalty to a corporation, no matter how well you think they've treated you, is bullshit. They'll pay you off or drop you like a bad habit the moment it's convenient for them. You don't know what I had to do to keep that job. Blow someone? I laughed a little bit nervously. No, not that. Not sure how the hell you managed it, but yeah, she said. I knew. And I understand. I'm not saying it's what I would have done, but I understand. These days, with the corpse in control of everything, I wouldn't say what you did was really all that surprising. It was a career-making move. The corpse have done way worse for less important reasons. Sherwood was a dick. He ignored his own artistic sensibilities for something he thought would lead to a bigger paycheck. You know, if you stay there long enough, you might end up following in his footsteps. Did you know when Bob started, he was one of Ureshi's in-house composers? No. No, I didn't. I couldn't believe she knew so much about me, about what I had done. I'd had a man killed, and she still wanted to be with me. There was one problem, though. I've never been relationship material. I mean, husband and wife? Vanilla sex on Sundays? Arguing over bills? I had to say something. Karen, you can do better than you. Shut the fuck up, Carlos. Don't ever say that to me again. 
I don't want to do better than you. I want to do you. I flashed forward, she and I in some tiny Spanish hatchback, guitar laid over the back seats, driving through the Pyrenees. Nature is all around us, slate-gray monuments on one side, trees a vivid green blur on the other. She looks over at me and she's wearing sunglasses. The windows are rolled down. It's chilly, and there's a scent of juniper in the air. I had always wanted a badass partner, someone unafraid to fight our battles while I kept quietly to my music. I'm an introvert by nature. I had to fight and kill for myself because the work demanded it. Yet I had hated every battle. If it weren't for my talent, I'd be the kind of person people look down on. I wished I were more like her, assertive, free-thinking, and independent. I wasn't ready for life outside the company. I put my phone back in my coat pocket. What do you want from me, Carlos? A declaration of love? She walked over and gave me a kiss that melted my heart and tightened my pants. She smelled faintly like lavender and sandalwood. That's strange. My phobia didn't kick in. She grinned and pulled back. Mm-hmm. Do I have your attention? Yeah. A moment ago, I thought I was going to be killed in this empty catacomb of a building. Now I was thinking about changing my life. Running away with a beautiful woman who was unafraid to go for whatever she wanted. She'd be afraid to not take her up on it. Karen, I said, I'm not going with you. Her face froze. I'm going to finish out my contract. You're right about the stagnation, though, and I'm, I'm going to fix it. They need me, and I'm loyal. What about your loyalty to me? What about it? Stay with me in L.A. for the next couple of years. Then we can talk about going to Spain together. Maybe I could get you a job at Ureshi. Her shoulders sagged. I told you, I've had it with corporate bullshit. I'm ready to live free right now. I need to. I'd prefer to have a man with me. And I wanted it to be you, but if you're not into it, I'll have to find someone else or go it alone. Karen, you're... She put up her palm. Don't say it. You made your choice. One of the bruisers shook his head. His buddy looked down at his shoes. They walked me back to the elevators. It took forever to get back to the car. I was queasy when they drove me through the hills of my neighborhood. She sat next to me in the back. Nobody said anything, and the stereo was off. We snaked up Pinehurst and stopped in front of my house. I got out walked up the poorly lit path in front, and put my key into the door lock. I didn't look back. I didn't dare. My phone buzzed. Neville. I ignored it and collapsed into the big leather chair by the bay window. I didn't bother to turn on the lights. I could have reached out and touched the couch where Karen and I had made out. I didn't know if I'd made the right decision. I guess I'd never know. I was dedicated to the work and had been my whole life. I owed Ureshi. Working there gave my life the structure that made me complete. And it wasn't only about a regular paycheck and benefits, either. I took pride in being part of a group that had the characteristics I lacked. I guess I'd always be a company man. Hey, Victor, how you doing, man? Hey, Josh, good, man. Good to hear you and see you again. You too, likewise. Um, through video, hopefully here soon in real life as uh, here soon in real vaccines life. are making their way, we'll, we'll be uh, back in real life company again. 
Yes. Which will be nice. This show has uh, transcended the worldwide pandemic. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I guess you could say that, right? (laughs) Well, this story was really exciting because it's it's your love story. It's your romance. It's your romance noir is what it is, you know? Correct. It is a love story, uh, a really interesting one. Kind of, in a way... Uh, there, it, Karen reminded me of like one of the woman w- villains from a Bond movie. Yeah, oh, you know, cool. like seducing seducing uh, someone in a rather um, unorthodox way, but they kind of are have these type of maybe background agenda. Like you still think at the, I still think at the end of the story, there's more going on there than what there is. Like yeah, like. Is he safe? I don't know. She might have him killed. Yeah. I mean, it is a romance. That was the challenge. You know, uh, as as you, you know, listeners, as you can tell from listening to the old uh, old episodes before this, um, a lot of these were uh, just a writing exercises where I was like, well, can I write a romance? And after much uh, thinking and wringing of hands and dreaming and stuff. Uh, this is what I came up with. Uh, and it started with the idea of a man locked in a car trunk and using his sense of hearing to figure out where he was being taken uh, and have the sex roles flipped. So uh, Karen, the stalker, I guess, is uh, is the kidnapper. And um Carlos is uh, who's appeared in, uh, you know, if you remember from Kilfi and uh, he's in another story that's not in the book as well. But I think it's just those three. But um, but in any case, he's the uh, kidnappee. Uh, so he's the one that has to figure out, you know, I thought it'd be cool. Like he's an audio guy. He's a composer and he's got to use his ears to figure out what's what's happening to him uh, before he meets Karen and she tells him everything. So, so that was my idea of a romance, <laughs> an illegal <laughs> kidnapping in uh, the it. near future. Um, it is great. But it's also a, a metaphor for midlife crisis, right? Like it's, um, it's basically, if, if you consider Karen and Carlos being the same person, like uh, symbolically, uh, then it's just the crossroads that we all come to at a point in our careers where we're like, is this worth it? Like, should I be doing this or should I fuck it all and move somewhere else and start again. Uh, so that's the di- essentially the, the dilemma that the universe presents to Carlos that he has to respond to in one way or another. It's a really awesome story. Um, I, I think you also kind of wrote a little bit of a romantic comedy in a way. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of comedy in this, and I think you don't give yourself enough credit for that. You, you always say, like, you, you know, you had a, that when you did actually write a comedy, it, you, you said it was like a harder, harder challenge for you. Yeah. Um, but the more I read between the lines and your stories and listen to them, I'm like, Victor's pretty damn funny. Like this, <laughs> the, you, you have some very witty kind of subtle, subtle drop-ins in there. Like my favorite from this one was, uh, well, he couldn't be going too fast because we were in Culver City, you know, like, right. so like he knows that like they're still probably in Culver City because just there's the traffic was so bad that they wouldn't have gotten out of there yet. Yeah, it's an inside <laughs> joke for anyone that's ever driven through yeah. Culver City. <laughs> yeah. And, you you know, you said um, 36 is like he was 36 years old and that's like 19 in Hollywood years, you know, like he has his whole life ahead of him, basically, when, <laughs> m- you know, most other people like I'm. I'm a little bit, you know, I'm almost 38 and I'm already thinking, well, shit, life is half over. What am I going to do for the second half? <laughs> and it, in yeah. L.A. life, it's it's a, it, you're just getting started. Yeah, at that I, age. indeed. I, I mean, I didn't start dating my wife till I was 34, I think. Um, so that's pretty, pretty late in life. Um, but it seemed very early considering, yeah. you know, compared to all my friends in in uh, the entertainment <laughs> business. <laughs> So, I mean, it, it's when you start talking about the Reshi Corp, you know, I'm like, oh, shit, this is part of Kilfi, which we knew in this book that you were going to have a, a universe, uh, which is very cool. I love that cohesive idea. It it brings. It's a 
it's a cool way to tie together a bunch of different stories. And it's, it's one of my favorite elements in storytelling. Um, when I was a kid watching Quentin Tarantino movies, it was something I caught on to and really liked. I, I just thought it, when you do it in this abstract fashion, it's more, it's more fun. So this, this is part of Kilfi and, um, this is also part of a story that's not in Sound of Fear. Uh, you want to talk about that? That's right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There's a story I published, I think, in 2017, maybe, um, with uh, it's called Some Assembly Required, uh, where it also it takes place at the Ureshi holiday party. And um, it's a cyber cybernetic. Um, I guess it's a, it's another technor story because it's a revenge story um but it's also a um a science fiction story where one of the characters has some robotically enhanced uh parts so it's it's near future for sure it's it's at least five years in the future let's say okay yeah cool well i mean it's a common thread too and you're you know in just tech noir style is these corporations are like the new government in a way and like they get away with murder. Right. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> right. The, the future I envisioned was everything was uh, deregulated and the corporations basically run everything. And the, the heads of corporations have become like pop pop stars. And um, uh, so it's kind of rollerball ish. If you've ever seen that movie from 1975, I think um, I've also seen this thing called, real life right now it's kind of <laughs> happening in yeah, front of is, us yeah. um it is it, it the tech the tech industry definitely blew it up you know where i always thought it was funny that um uh, the news and media and social media society as a whole goes after the ceos a lot of tech companies of what they're doing their business practices yada 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 yeah. rightfully so i don't think there's a problem with that i think any company should be questioned uh, when they're that powerful and have that much money. But there's a lot of other industries in our world that I feel like their CEOs are just like, oh, shit, I hope they don't fucking start talking to me. <laughs> you know, yeah. like there's so many other companies doing really heinous things to people yeah. um, or, or, or just are far more reaching into our lives than people might might take for granted, you know, people take for granted and their business practices aren't quite in the limelight as much as the tech companies. It's, it's a really interesting thing, you know, like about society, like because we interact with the tech products so much like in our face, mm -hmm. we're not thinking like, well, Hey, have you ever looked into some of these shipping companies and their business practices or, sure. you know, these companies that make the batteries for all the phones we use and you know, the list goes on, but yeah, it, so in a way, we turned CEOs of these tech companies into pop stars. We did that. Yes. Society did that. Yes. Um, they didn't do it themselves. They weren't like, it wasn't like, you know, I think of Silicon Valley um, was where this all started. And hey, if you want to watch a great movie, uh, Silicon Cowboys is a cool documentary. And I might know the people who did the sound on that film. Um, <laughs> I got to check that out. It's early Silicon Valley. It's like the, you know, medical years like the 70s when yeah. tech was being exclusively created for it was kind of coming out of government it was segueing from government into medical fields and education because that was kind of like the next step then consumers came after that mm -hmm. in the 80s right. so the 70s was all about medical advancements in technology yeah and the start of trying to make a personal computer you know they were trying to figure out that so the 70s is a really interesting era, and they kind of became their own little superstars that way. Right. Um, but really, it's the it's the Apple-Microsoft war. That was yeah. just so prolific that that really created these, you know, it made these business CEOs, these, these dorks who no one would have ever heard of in their life, into these very popular, well-known figures to where they couldn't even go into public you know they're just yeah. they're being shit followed like by the paparazzi well right now it's almost become a religion um yeah the, the, i mean it's replaced religion as a lifestyle like the ultra healthy um upwardly mobile uh tech employee um that that is a lifestyle like it's it's a thing that you practice every day 
Uh, oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I work in it, so you know, we, yeah. <laughs> you did, I mean, you, you worked around games, so you know a lot about games. And I mean, yeah. I work at the the world's largest bookstore. <laughs> right. <laughs> yes. Uh, people can guess what that is. But it's like, yeah, man, it, it is a it is like a lifestyle. And that's why Silicon Valley was so great, because Mike Judge just wrote about that so well and made fun of it in such a great way. You know, like these CEOs are getting yeah. fucking uh, stem cells injected into them, getting blood transfusions <laughs> from really young, fit people, which he didn't make this shit up. No, I know. He didn't like come up with that. He's not a science fiction writer. No. He writes what's actually happening and makes a joke about it. Yeah, it, it's like uh, Silicon Valley is like Spinal Tap. Like it's it's uh, <laughs> all those things, all oh, those yeah. things that are jokes have happened just it, it's just in this thing it all happens to the same people um that's the only difference <laughs> and you see the absurdity absurdity of it when you put it in front of people i mean like right. yeah like so much of spinal tap is referencing shit david lee roth and van halen all those fucking guys were doing yes. you know like they didn't have to make this stuff up yeah the um the the pimento the scene where uh nigel freaks out because the bread isn't the right size in the green room <laughs> like that that is that comes from the the van halen rider with the the brown m&ms that that needed to be taken out of the <laughs> so do you know the history of riders and why they became a thing no i don't so i got to learn about riders when i was you know my early days of sound and um it's it's got an interesting history so in live sound, uh, you get to look at the writers almost all the time. You know, the production, someone has to look at it because there's going to be, it, it's a multifaceted document. Right. And I saw some pretty funny ones. The I probably shouldn't say who from, but I mean, no one like, no one, no one that's like a giant pop star, but some pretty well-known rock bands having some funny things still in there. Nothing too crazy like the blue M&M shit, but the reason they do that they said was it came from the early days of when people would get fucked up on stage, like electrocuted or some technical thing. So someone thought of this a long time ago to pepper in these weird requests to see if people actually read the writer and to see how on the up and up this venue was. Uh, okay. And then people really took advantage of that and ran with it. But that is where it started from. A writer came from managers and tour managers just wanting to protect their their bands to make sure that like, Hey, how up to snuff is this venue? So if they knew they walked in and saw this one thing missing from the green room, that was easy to see. They're like, fuck, they didn't read any of the writer. These people didn't pay attention to shit. And then yeah. they know like, can we trust the tech behind the stage? Is this stage going to catch on fire when we do pyro? Like, do they have proper safety measures in place? So it was this whole system designed off of safety to see it's like it's it's a gotcha it's a gotcha to see if you makes read sense. the fucking you know the document yeah makes sense um and people ran with it you know when the 80s came when cocaine came into play people were like ah what else can we do with this can we <laughs> fucking ask for anything we want more yeah more and they're well and they're that's when musicians also became you know insanely rich right yes yeah, so, so one yeah, one thing i wanted to say about the story um it's it's very it's more personal than most of my stories. Um, I mean, Carlos is definitely a stand-in. I mean, this and Kilfi, I think, are probably drawn most from my personal experiences, as opposed to the the other stories are are mostly drawn from other people's experiences that I know. So a really attractive, um, successful woman locked you in a trunk and took you for a ride through L.A. Uh, metaphorically speaking, um, <laughs> she take your, take your heart for but, a ride uh, through, through LA. <laughs> yeah. Um, Aww. but yeah, I mean, I, I think that the, the thing, I mean, obviously it's, it's been an embellished to make it an interesting story read, but a lot of the characters in Love's Hard Edge are, um, are definitely based on people I've wow. worked with. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, uh, yeah, and and the other thing was, uh, I also wanted to try something um, on top of it being technically a romance. I mean, it's a very violent romance, but um, it, it, I also um, did something really weird at the end of the story, which um, most people that read read it, you know, when I was trying to get it published, didn't get. Um, so if you've just listened to this story <laughs> in this podcast. 
Um, the fact that Carlos decides not to go with Karen and stay um, is supposed to be heartbreaking for the reader because it's supposed to be obvious in the story. And I rewrote this story many, many times trying to make this point um, come across. But it's supposed to be obvious that the right decision for him is to bail on his uh, his company and go with this woman to Spain. Um, and uh, he decides to ignore that because whatever that's he's got something in him that is a corporate loyal guy. Um, and uh, it's supposed to be disappointing. But um, I, I read the story by Henry. Henry James, and um, the story is called The Aspern Papers, and uh, it ends very similarly, where he's trying to find these these uh, the, this, these pages of poetry uh, because he's a collector, and he gets into this romance because of it, and he decides to uh, leave, like uh, break the heart of the of the woman who's obviously a good match for him. Um, just for the sake of getting the papers, and uh, the way he ends the story is just a—it's just a punch <laughs> in the chest. <laughs> like it's like, oh, I can't believe he did that. <laughs> um, and uh, so I wanted to do something like that, but you know, I'm not Henry Miller, so I think that's why it wasn't as obvious to the the, the publishers that read it. They were like, mm, yeah, really. Um, and and also, you know, with with pulp fiction, obviously, people want very obvious uh, story patterns, and that kind of breaks the the structure. So uh, it was a challenge, but I really, really worked at it. And uh, if you picked on up on that after you listen to the story, congratulations! Uh, you're you're one of the literary few that that got that figured that out. You know, I thought about it rather from both ways. You know, I, I looked at it from this side that he he knows that's the right thing to do is to go with her to Spain and specifically when he like does a little daydream of you know a, a Spanish hatchback and his guitar you know like just living like a very low key yeah. life to him sounds appealing you, the way he's daydreaming about it, he's sort of like oh man that would be nice and really who the hell doesn't want that? Who the hell doesn't want to run away with a bunch of money and go live in a Spanish villa next to the beach, just playing music at playing the music you want to play at local clubs and yeah. not have to worry about money or anything in the world. It sounds amazing. No, it's not only that, but it's, it's with a woman he admires, right? It's with a woman that like he knows, he knows he's into her. He knows he's into it, and yeah, you know it, the the kiss too. I think leads that way too. I, I think you put subtle cues in there where it made me ponder, like, okay, he could go either way right now, and if he goes back to work, he's just going to repeat all of his patterns <laughs> again. Have to kill more people probably for the company, or you know, yeah. uh, become stagnant in his music career too. So it's just, it, it, it is an interesting story of, of that, like testing, testing ones, like, uh, what, 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 like you're testing someone's like loyalty in a, like their whole life, like of loyalty. Like, well, what are you loyal to? Cause he's not loyal to himself. Right. He's not even care thinking about himself. You know, right. and she's given so many things away. Like I am done corporate bullshit it's a very relatable story to me as well like when i hear the story i almost wish like i could like metaphorically be kidnapped away from my job and given another out i i it was it's also a comment on how yeah how um culture in in the types of jobs that you and i have both had um is it's presented like well you've landed in your dream job buddy you know you're gonna work here for the rest of your life which is of course a lie like you know um even huge lifestyle corporations uh eventually lay people off they change departments your their boss leaves you get a new boss you don't like you inherit and you know people that report to you that you don't like all those things can easily make you change your mind about your career choice and um when you are in a romantic 
partnership with someone, uh, it only takes one of them to go, all right, I've had it with, you know, trying to get these kind of jobs and live, you know, in this ultra competitive city. Let's do something else for the other person to say, well, maybe I wasn't looking to have this happen to my life quite at this point. It was a little bit later, but since my partner wants to do it, let's do it. Yeah. No thought in the world that I could write a noir romance. You know, that was the furthest thing from my mind. But as, you know, I wrote this pretty late in in the assemblage of this book. And um, that's when I was trying more and more bizarre things. And uh, I was like, yeah, it worked. Like, you know, the ideas finally came together. And, and I was like, yeah, this this is a, this is something I want to write. I like so. how you don't even know it's a romance novel for quite a while or a romance story. You don't you don't yeah. realize it till you know, three quarters of the way through it, which is, which is kind of fun. It's definitely a male action totally, perspective totally on is, romance. Yeah. <laughs> like it's, it's not lovey-dovey. It's not all sweet or anything. It's, it's uh, it's harsh. Well, it's love's hard edge, you know, makes sense. Yeah. Um, well, thanks Victor. Uh, it was great getting to talk to you about this story. Uh, we've like, you've hit so many great, like kind of subjects in each story of like, you know, the broader writing topics, you know, here. And, uh, I like, I like this one a lot. It was really fun. Very relatable. Thank you. Thanks. So what do we have next for people? Well, um, next, I think there may only be one story left and I'm correct. There is only one story left and it's, yep. Echoes. Uh, it's it's a novelette. It's quite long, and um, so strap in. You're going to be listening to me talk for uh, about an hour on that one. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm really proud of that story. Uh, it's basically my version of Lord of the Rings. Um, oh, nice! That's awesome. <laughs> well, I look forward to that one. It's. Uh, I think it'll be cool too that you know we're. We're ending on like a big, big giant fantasy kind of story, right? That if you're saying Lord of the Rings, I, I mean, I already know what the story is, but you know, we're, we're ending on a fantasy note, yeah. which is cool. We might have to just like, you know, we'll do a shorter interview on that one. And then maybe our very last episode will be like a goodbye message. You know, we'll do like a, a goodbye episode and um, tell people to stay tuned for the next season, you know, this season of, of, of the podcast will be over, you know, um, jealous audio. It will be the, you know, this is the podcast network and this inside the sound of fear is one of the many seasons we will have. So it'll be fun to indeed. I can't, and I can't, I can't wait to do more with you. It's been awesome. Yeah, man. Likewise, uh, building our little following here, naturally grassroots style not promoting it too hard but promoting it a little you know i think we're doing a, a very genuine natural um kind of uh, growth a- absolutely and and you know everybody out there you know andrew greg amortis uh jay all you guys that have retweeted you know the when the podcast uh, new episode comes yeah, out really appreciate that and uh, you know extending the signal um, it was really awesome. It's because of you guys that we're, you know, getting into, uh, some, some more ears than, than we would. So thanks. <laughs> thanks. Thanks for following. Thank you very much. And thank you to all the, the new folks that have come and stay tuned and have, have, uh, have stuck with us through, you know, the whole ordeal. Everyone knows what it is. COVID yada, yada, yada. You know, we, we, we production was halted and we had to get creative with it and it has actually been working out pretty well we have a little longer breaks in between episodes than i would like but it's still going along and we're getting it done so yay all right (laughs) and that is episode 11 love's hard edge talk to y'all next time see ya